Amy Carmichael was an Irish Christian missionary to India in the late 1800s, really all the way to 1951. She opened an orphanage and and she served there for 55 years, pouring herself out in this ministry, doing all sorts of things, including rescuing girls from the temple. She had a ministry to them, especially from sexual assignments in that temple. And she would rescue them, bringing the gospel to them. And she absolutely devoted herself to the gospel in the midst of a society that was Hindu and pantheistic. How'd she do it? Well, her prayer reveals how she did it. Quote, and this is actually a written prayer that, she, that, that uh, later she would write in sort of a prosaic way. Shall I, I pray thee, change thy will, my father, until it be according unto mine? But no, Lord, no, that never shall be. Rather, I pray thee, blend my human will with thine. Blend my human will with thine. In the society, among all the governing authorities of India, and her greatest concern was that her will be blended right into God's. Her concern was not that the government itself would change to lessen all the atrocities done to these poor girls. No, no, no. It was just simply, Lord... Let me be one whose will is blended into your will. Now, in a sense, that's First Peter two, thirteen to seventeen. So let's turn there and make sure we're ready for this study by placing that passage right in front of us. And actually, let's stand for the reading of God's word. So let's stand if you can. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. I'm just going to read aloud. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So our study is actually from verses 11 through 20. And that's really just one thought of Peter. It's important that we keep that thought connected together. That what it is that he started in verse 11 was sort of a, a change from where he was at in verse 10. Verse 10. 
he really goes through that thought all the way through verse 20. And you remember where we got the central point that Peter is making, and it's right there in verse 15. Put your eyes there uh, just for a moment. It says that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, what are the foolish men that he's talking about? He's talking about unbelievers. And in fact, he's not just talking about unbelievers. He's talking about critical unbelievers. He's talking about unbelievers that criticize, that bring their their accusations, that bring their charges against Christians. Foolish, the foolish men are critics against Christianity, against the gospel. And he says we're to silence them. Now what silences them? Our lives. Our lives. How we live. Our integrity. So our theme for our study of verses 11 through 20, that's why it says it up there on the top, censoring critics, captivating converts. We could say attracting converts. You might say, I mean, there's lots of different ways you could say it. You could say it in the Matthew 5, 16 sort of way, shining your light that converts might see or that those might, sinners might see and be converted. In other words, we believers are to live in such a way that we close the mouths of our critics. That's kind of a tough thing to do. And oftentimes we, I think, get the wrong thought that the thing that will close the mouth of a critic will be as if we have the smartest argument. If we could just think of, you know, kind of, oh, what's the right thing I can say to that person that will kind of go, ah, see, I got you. You don't, you don't even have anything to say to that. There's no comeback for that. And what Peter says, you could do that, but it's not with your fancy words. It's not with your slick arguments. What is it? What closes their mouths? Very simple when we live above reproach. You say, but I thought that that was just for the leaders of the church to live above reproach. Well, listen to Paul in Philippians 2, verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now when he says that, he's not saying, hey, figure it out. He's not saying, hey, you need to kind of earn it. Work for your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work the salvation that you have out. Work what you have in position to be on the outside in practice. And then verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. I like that because if, if I'm called to work it out, I just know this. I'm going to fail a whole lot. I need God to be doing that work through me. How about you? Right? And then verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Here it is, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That is the same thing that Peter is saying. That's what he's saying. 
We are to live in such a way that we are above reproach that they can't say anything bad about us and that censors our critics. When they, they do nasty stuff against us and our response is the opposite of that. It shuts their mouths. It silences their accusations and critiques. What does? Our above reproach life. There's a second thing it does. It doesn't just silence them. It saves them. Oh, be careful how easy it is to look at your critics and make them the enemy and think to yourself, I'm all done with them. I'm wiping the dust off and you know, that you, you're not going to say it outwardly, but inwardly you hope they kind of fall into a ditch or something. But he says, live in such a way that your life is a compelling testimony of God's grace to save them. Silences their accusations, but it also saves them. It converts them. See, what does? When they see a sinner that's been transformed and that lives like Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.15 says, you appear as lights in the world. Matthew 5.16, they see the good works and then they glorify the Father in heaven. In fact, he says, let your light so what? Shine before men. So our godly conduct does two things. It censors critics. It captivates converts. God uses our lives to save people. You remember, Peter says there are three ways to see your life as a Christian. Three concerns. Three arenas that we need to be mindful of and we need to see ourselves in. The first one is as strangers in this world. We need to live as strangers in this world. Now, be careful. Some of you think, well, I do that pretty good. I'm a pretty strange fellow, you know. No, no, no. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, he's not giving you the right to go out and be weird, okay. That's not the point. But in verses 11 through 12, he teaches that we are to be strangers in this world. Secondly, we are to live as citizens to this world. And that's verses 13 and 17. And then third, as servants before this world. And that's verses 18 through 20. Now you need to start thinking of your life in those ways as strangers, as citizens, and as servants. And what we mean is how you live it in those three spheres. Say it a different way. We said this last week. You are the Bible the world reads. So this is crucial. And I tell you, beloved, There are a lot of opinions that are out there about what Christianity is these days. I've been hearing them so much lately. 
lots of views about Christianity. Most of them are negative. So how can we give people the correct view of the gospel? Of what Christianity really is all about? Some people say, maybe we should, maybe we should debate them. Let's just debate them. We'll reason them to kind of finally get to that place where they can, you know, know that, no, 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 you're wrong about Christianity. It's this, not that. And so some people think debate is how we should approach it. Maybe we should write books about them. Or maybe we can stand on the street corner and yell at them. And then they'll be able to see and know. No, the, you know, let me just say this way. You know, one of the things that is so ineffective, and I, I want to be careful when I say this. George Whitfield was an open air preacher. You understand, in that day, that was important because that was there was very much a it was very much an acceptable cultural way to go out and communicate when you have something important to say. George Whitfield also was not an invisible man. He was a man connected to people. His life was lived right before people. Believers. The problem with getting up and going into some corner and preaching a message and then leaving is that nobody knows who you are. And Peter here says, the connection to the gospel has to also be through your life. The most powerful thing that we could do is live above reproach lives. Blameless lives before them so they can see Jesus lives. And it becomes clear to them when they say, yeah, that makes sense. Because look at how you live. Now your message makes sense. Because look at how you live. I get it. I get it. When you say Jesus is Lord, it makes sense. Look at how you live. People that know the Lord Jesus, that have been saved by the Lord Jesus, and who follow the Lord Jesus. I can see why many unbelievers today are confused about Christianity and end up saying, no thanks. I mean, the people that claim to know Jesus and follow him don't look much different than the world. You know, they talk the same, they commit the same sins, they they get angry, they commit immorality, they watch the same stuff that we watch, they say, and I mean, they say the same profane words that we do, they complain just like we do, so why believe in their Jesus? And so they reproach the name of Christ, and we can't deny their reproaches because our lives don't look different. Our lives don't have power. They can easily see. And when I say our, I mean on the whole. Oh, that this would not be true of us. 
and our lives don't shine with the glory of Jesus. Now, in a sense, it's really easy for true believers to live in this world. John 18, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. I mean, when you live as a stranger to this world, when you live as a citizen of another kingdom, when you live as servants in this world but belonging to another kingdom, then whatever happens on this world, whatever they say, whatever their rules are, they try to get you and I to conform to, it really doesn't matter. So, well, you know, I believe that democracy is the greatest form of government and that's going to be really important that we have a country that's full of democracy. And then others maybe, you know, well, you know, no, I don't know, that's not true. Socialism is the way to go. We really need to have that. And then you go and talk to people that, have, that actually believe that communism is the way to go. And, you know, well, you know, listen, you can pile up all the isms all over the place. And to us believers, it doesn't really matter for us personally because we're a part of a different kingdom. You've got all your isms going on out there, but they, they do nothing for me in terms of following Christ. You can tell me that I'm not allowed to do this or that. I'll still pray. I'll still let the word of Christ richly dwell within me. You can take that away from me. He said, well, I'll just take your Bible from you. That's why I worked hard at memorizing it. You can't take it from me. We got tested recently about this. When COVID came around and they tried to tell us this and that and tried to close down churches, it really wasn't a big deal to the true church of Jesus Christ. I mean, we didn't have to say anything. We just kept seeking Christ and that meant fellowship and care for one another and preaching and singing and loving one another. We didn't do that out of rebellion. We did that out of obedience to Jesus. That's how we live, man. Right? It's our life. We live in and for a whole other kingdom. There are no rules for that except to follow him and love him with all our heart and to love others, see? And it's just that simple. No wonder during the Black Plague, the Christians, everybody left, but it was the Christians that kept running in to to just serve and care for those people that were dying from that plague because nobody would touch them. So what am I going to do? I mean, I'm called to love others. It's just what I do because I belong to a, a different kingdom, see? And so what we're saying is that we are citizens of a higher calling. We've been called to live a certain way in this world, but to not be of this world. 
You got that? In it, not of it. And I tell you, beloved, it can be tricky. There's a line there, and we have to help each other with it all the time. You ever feel that in your own heart? It's like, oh, man, should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I go over there? Should I not go over there? I don't want to, don't want it, I don't want to be of that world, but, you know, but I am in the world. Jesus was in the world. He didn't let himself get conformed to the world. So there's a, there's a way to be in the world, but not be a part of its system, right? There has to be a way to do it. The, 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 to be a stranger to its system and, its, and ways and to be a citizen to it, but not get shaped into its mold. There has to be a way. Well, that's what First Peter two eleven through twenty is all about, actually, and especially verses thirteen and seventeen tells us how to be in it, but not to be of it. Now, the first way we make that clear is how we deal with ourselves, and that's verses eleven through twelve. We abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, the world needs to see people that are disciplined at that level. And let me tell you, there are not a lot of them out there in the world, right? Today's motto in the world, if you feel it, what? Do it. Right? If it feels right, do it. If you think it, say it. This is the world. And they can't stop themselves. But as believers, we're strangers to fleshly lusts. We, 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 we are committing, committing ourselves to be disciplined at that level, both internally and externally. We talked about that um, last week. And then second, we showed them how to be a citizen in this world and not conform to its mold. That's verses 13 to 17. We show them that we have a higher authority that we are under and that helps us live under the lower authority. You get that? What's the higher authority? Jesus. What's the lower authority? The world and its order. (coughs) The world and its order. So what's our calling then as citizens to this world? One simple word, submission. Submission. And you can write that down, submission. That's the answer there. And your notes, it's asked the question, what's our calling as citizens to this world? It is submission. And we're going to unpack that thought over the next four weeks. We'll take two weeks to kind of look at, you know, this this second point, and then two more weeks to look at the uh, the third point. Now, to be the citizen the Lord wants us to be, we will have to deal with six things to work them out like Philippians 2.12 says. And this is how you work out your salvation. Deal with these six. So let's look at point number one. You have to deal with the command. You have to deal with the command. Verse 13a. Look at First Peter 2.13. He says... Submit yourselves. 
I think the temptation for the Christian is to see this authority the world has and to disregard it. I mean, I serve a higher one. I don't need to follow its authority. I'm on a different plane. I mean, Peter says, no, you need to submit under it. It serves a purpose. And so you have to learn how to live within their system. You understand that? They have their system of order. We have to learn to live within it without being of it. And the first way is is to deal with the command. What is the command? He says, submit yourselves. That is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not a guide. This is not him saying, hey, I think it would be a good idea if you submit to them. You don't have to, but just think about it. Nope, it's not what he says. He says, you absolutely must submit yourselves. As we look at this command, we need also to remember where these believers are at. That Peter is writing to. They're being criticized heavily. For example, look, look at chapter 3, uh, verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And then in 314, a few verses later, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. In other words, the critics were so harsh. There was so much evil and so much insult that Peter calls it suffering. Just five, five verses later, it's suffering. That, that little saying, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, words will never hurt me, it's not actually true, is it? He says they those kinds of words can actually produce suffering. The, crit- the criticisms of others. You know, it's really the worst today. It's oftentimes, it's not even the criticisms of of. The unbelievers, it's the criticisms of those that claim to be believers. And what he's talking about is we might call it oppressive in today's language or abusive or toxic, hateful. In fact, just go back one verse, chapter 2, verse 12. The thing they slander you as evildoers. They were calling these Christians evildoers. Imagine that. You're living in this day, and they say, who are you? You say, I'm a follower of the way. What do you mean by that? Well, some people call us Christians. Some people call us followers of Christ. Some call us evildoers. But that's who we are. Evildoers? What do you mean evildoers? You're the evildoers? Well, I'll have to explain. We're not actually doing the evil. But they say we are. You remember last time we went through a whole list of things that they accused the early Christians of from cannibals, you know, John 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood, to rebels. Why don't they just totally follow Caesar, right? They accuse them of being atheists. We have all these gods and you're worshiping what you're calling the one true God. You must not really believe in God because there's all these gods and 
You only worship one. And he's invisible. We can't even see him. They called Christians immoral. And the reason why is because of all the affection that they had towards one another. I don't know what that... I mean, we know for sure they were giving each other holy kiss. And because love was the pervasive thing, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love towards one another. Love was the pervasive thing. There was Whenever there was affection, they it was so foreign to the Romans. They were not a very affectionate group of people. And they just labeled Christians immoral. They couldn't imagine affection without immorality. And look at them. They, they do it out in the open. You give each other hugs out in the open. It's terrible. By the way, Nero, when he burned down Rome, blamed it on the Christians. But this is what I want you to take away from. He labeled them an offshoot rebel sect of the Jews. What I want you to take away is who would believe him? Many did. And that was because they already accused Christians of being evildoers. So Nero just thought, surely they'll believe this. And many did. So how does a Christian go about defending himself from those kinds of accusations? How does a Christian respond to the lies and charges like that? Well, we don't go out and hire lawyers and seek to defend our name and our rights. We don't do that. Peter says there's only one way to deny their claims, and that's a godly life. Live a godly life. And that starts with submission. And you remember that when we live this way, we do two things. We extinguish their voice and we evangelize their souls. All right, now it's a simple command, but we have to deal with it. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Submit yourselves, in other words, to governing authorities. Now let's work this through. Why does Peter... Why does Peter have to say that? I kind of think it's because he knows what we're like, right? Okay, let me just say it a different way. Because I I think I so often feel like I'm very similar to Peter. Because he knows what Mike is like, okay? And I can be pretty self-defensive, all right? My natural response to anything is self-defense. You come around criticizing me and my first response that I want to come out with is to kind of say, hang on here, let me let me plead my case. I can't be as bad as you're making me out to be. And Peter says, don't do that. In fact, Peter doesn't also say that we are to ignore the governing authorities. Just ignore them, they'll go away. He doesn't say that either. He says, we are to submit ourselves. So what does that mean? You want a strategy on how to respond to their false accusations? 
I'll give it to you. Obey all the laws of the authorities over you. All of them. There you go. Just obey all of them. All of them. Say, oh man, this is the wet blanket. I wasn't, no, I was going to get the wet blanket today. Well, I'll help you out through this here. And I think by the time we get to the end of this uh, study, that it'll make a little more sense to you. And we'll talk a little bit too about what if they're, what if the government's overreaching? We'll talk about that. Well, let's look at the command. The, the Greek word is hupotasso. It's a military term. It's a compound of two words. Tasso is to rank or to line up, and hupa is the word under. Um, and so it's to line up under. To, so when you have the commander and he says, hey, uh, it's time for you to get in line. We're about to go where we need to go. That's not the, that's not the time and place for diplomacy. That's not the time to raise your hand and say, uh, Commander, are you sure we should be going that direction? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's not what you want to say to the commander. The commander knows. He's already worked it out. He's already sought enemy intelligence. He already knows exactly what he needs to be doing. He's made the plan. Your job is simply to line up, come under it, and go. Hupatasso. It is to array yourselves under his authority, to line up under that commander. And I like how one person translated it. Put yourselves in an attitude of submission. That's the idea. So this is an attitude check. You know, they say sometimes, check your attitude. You know, that's what this is. Now that word, submission, was a bad word in that day, and it is in ours or day two, for different reasons, though. And the reason why it's, it's different is because uh, in our day, we think of submission and we think of people, abusive people, and coming under abusive people, and we think of coming, you know, slavery and things like that. That is not how they would have thought of that word back then. Back then, the word submission meant weakness. It meant humility. It meant soft or sensitive. And the Romans wanted strong, resistant, brazen, bold, insensitive, hardened men who had no place for tears or backing down or weakness of any kind. That's what the Romans were looking for. Give us those kinds of soldiers. Give us those types of people. And the way they looked at it is the soldiers really represented the high level of of strength. And everybody else was just weak. Pride was a virtue to them. And so Peter says, as the people of God following Christ, we're to humble, to be humble and line up under the authorities of the land. He said, but that's so hard when it seems like the government has such bad direction. But I'll tell you, beloved, this isn't a new principle here in the New Testament. I want to show you this. And I know for me, this was powerful this last week, so I hope it is. it does for you what it did for me. I want to show you just a few places in the Old Testament. Turn to Jeremiah 29 to see this. And while you're doing that, I want you to listen to Proverbs 24, 21. My son, 
Fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those who are given to change. Who are the people that are given to change? The ones who always want to rebel against government. We need to change this. We need to make our voices heard and picket and strike and show them that we want change. He says, don't associate with the people like that. That's what the Proverbs say. So there's that. But look at Jeremiah 29. This is what actually I really want to show you. Now this is a fascinating and badly misunderstood portion of Scripture. In fact, this might change. I I bet there's at least one or two of you or more that have a plaque or something that's got Proverbs or Jeremiah 29, 11 on it. And I want to say that's wonderful. Don't take it down. Keep it up there and be excited about it. But I'm going to help you understand it here better. And you might look at it differently as as, as we work this through. Now, God gave Israel, Jeremiah, as a prophet to let them know because of their disobedience to him, Israel was going to be taken to Babylon as captives. Okay? You didn't obey. God was patient. All done. You're going to Babylon as prisoners. You're leaving this place that God had promised to give Israel. So look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. And plant gardens and eat their produce. Now stop there for a moment. He says, you're going to a place that doesn't belong to you and I want you to just act normal. I want you to be regular there. I don't want you to fight it. I don't want you to pick it. I don't want you to make a stir and shake your fist. I don't want you to try to make Babylon the new Jerusalem. I don't want you to do that. I just want you to live. So, man, explain yourself. Do normal things. Build houses. And live in them. In other words, don't fight this. Look at verse 6. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. In other words, have weddings and all that stuff. They may have sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, he says. Again, just live normal. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city. Ooh, underline that. That's an important point. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. Did you catch that? For in its welfare, you will have welfare. He says, seek the welfare of the city. 
huh, can I just help you think of this this way? Do you know what he's saying? Be community-minded. That's what he's saying. I told you it's tricky. We say we're to be in the world, but not to be of it. I think oftentimes we are fighting so hard to not be in the world for fear that we become of it, that we don't ever get in it. But he says, be in it, just don't be conformed to it. And you know, He says, make the city prosper well. And I tell you, beloved, sometimes we think separation from the world is, is to shun the community. It's not what he's saying at all. That's the opposite of what the Lord tells Israel here. And then in verse 8, he says, don't let your prophets deceive you when they tell you, oh, everything's going to be all right. We're not going to Babylon. No, you are. This is of the Lord, and you can't stop it. This is good. It's, we're, we're okay. We're good. No, you're not. The Lord has reached the point where he now has to discipline you, and you're going to be taken into a land where you don't belong, but you need to just live there under their government and among all their ways and just be normal. Just live life, see. Look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. In other words, you're going to go there to Babylon. I have a plan for you over there and I have a plan to bring you back. You are going to, though, go to Babylon, and I want you to be under its ways and government with purpose. Don't fight this. Live life there. And then we get verse 11. Which is always ripped from its context. Listen to it. For I know the plans that I have for you. What plans? 70 years. And then after. Sometimes I think we should maybe make ourselves mindful of that when we read, I know the, the, the plans I have for you. There might be a 70-year time in your life where you're really having to go through it. Jeremiah 29, 11 looks a little different to you now, doesn't it? But look how the Lord says it. Plans for welfare and not calamity. What kind of welfare? He just got done saying... Live for the welfare of that city. What city? Babylon. And not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Are you saying we should go to Babylon and just kind of live miserably and wait and say to ourselves, well, the Lord promised days are going to get better. They're going to be good later on. No, what he says is live life now putting your hope and trust in the Lord. Build it where you're at, but know that it's even going to be better later. 
See? It's all of the above. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now what is the point? That God's will for them was for them to live in this temporary place in a normal way, seeking the welfare of the city, coming under the governing authorities. And he says, submit to that. I have plans for your future, but for now, you live in that 70-year period where you just submit to it. In fact, in verse 7, a better translation would be, in its peace, you will have peace. In other words, the more you commit to the peace for that city, the greater your peace is going to be for you. Say it a different way. If you want to turn this difficult situation into a good one, become the instruments of peace in that land. And you know, beloved, what Peter is saying, and this is how it ties, we have an opportunity in our land, in our country, in our state, our community, to be an instrument of peace, an instrument of welfare to this city. You're in a foreign land. Do everything you can to promote its welfare. You do that, and it's going to benefit you too. God has a plan that's greater than you can imagine. That's how you understand Jeremiah 29.11. In fact, verse 12. Pray for that city. You're in it. Pray for it. And you know... That's the second thing that you can do. The first is live it, live in it normally, and you know coming under it, its governing authority. See, and then you pray, right? So back to First Peter two thirteen. The command is a very simple one: submit yourselves to the governing authority. First Thessalonians four is another sort of another, uh, I guess, New Testament way of looking at First Peter two thirteen. It's another picture from the New Testament of what that looks like. Listen to this one. Verse 9, love one another. Verse 10, excel still more at loving others. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands. I like that. Just as we commanded you Here it is, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. In other words, you do all that you can do so that you bring benefit to them, you bring benefit to you, and the testimony of that will be, whoa, what kind of people are this? This is people that follow Jesus, people. That's what submit yourselves looks like. And if you want an even more direct way of saying this, think about Romans 13. One, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Every person. For there is no authority except from God. 
those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. It's pretty straightforward. It's not, that's not too hard to get. You say, well, that might be easy for Paul and Peter. You know, they had it easy. Look at our government. Really? Have you ever heard of a guy named Nero? who took Christians and just used, lit them up like his torches? How about any of the Caesars? They were very oppressive, and especially oppressive to Christians. And you can read the, the, the history books to see this and find this out. So submit yourselves. Deal with the fact that this is a command by the Lord and obey His command for the welfare of the city. There's a second thing you have to deal with to be the kind of citizen the Lord wants you to be living in this world, but not of it. Number two, you have to deal with the motive. Deal with the motive. Now, what's the motive of our submission? Look at verse 13. He says, for the Lord's sake. What's that mean? Well, it makes us question, why do we have submission? Why do we have to, to have submission for the Lord's sake? You could say this word for can be translated because. Because of the Lord's sake. We do it for the Lord. How so? Well, let me give you a few thoughts here. The first one has to do with obedience. Submit to the authorities because it is obedience. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go and make disciples, teaching them to what? Obey me. Teaching them to obey me. One way you obey Jesus is you submit to the authorities. Do it because Jesus said to do it. Why do we obey the authorities? Jesus said so. It's... That's enough, right? So submitting is actually obeying Jesus. And whoever resists actually resists God. That's Romans 13. I mean, didn't Romans 13 say that? I mean, there's no authority except from God. Whoever resists it really resists God. In the Jeremiah passage, there's also uh, a statement in Jeremiah 24. They were put in the land of the Chaldeans. And the Lord said, submit to them and you will prosper. The Jew might have thought, but wait a minute, isn't that a pagan nation? Yes. Don't they have, um, you know, improper practices like idolatry? Yes. Aren't there immoral practices? Yes. But submit to them. Why? Do it, verse 6, because my eye is on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Do it, because this is how I can help you learn how to love me. See? That's why you do. And Jesus said to love him is to obey his what? His commands. 
And so God isn't pleased with you raising a rebellion against the governing authorities. You might have been placed in Babylon, but submit to her for the Lord's sake out of obedience to him, Romans 13. You know, that same passage in Romans 13 tells us that God has ordained that government to keep the peace for all. Did you realize that in Romans 13 he doesn't name what kind of government? Could you just tell us what, what governments are the good ones and what are the bad ones? He said, it doesn't really matter. So when you submit, you obey Jesus. And so the motive has to do with obeying Jesus. It has to also do with following Jesus. Not just obeying Jesus, but following him. What do you mean? His example. Following his example. What's the great example of Jesus submitting to the governing authorities? Well, you could just stay here. First Peter, look at verses uh, 21 to 25. It's going to the cross. The Jews couldn't kill Jesus. They had to have the Romans do it because they had, they're the ones that had legal authority of execution, right? They needed Rome to accept the charges and pass sentence against Jesus to, to have him executed on a cross. Now, do you remember Jesus' response? Look at it here in verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now watch this. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How do we die to sin and live to righteousness? One way is by submitting to the authorities like Jesus did, and not reviling in return. That's all. Did you know that Jesus wasn't a protest kind of guy? Did you know that? He never led a rebellion. He said, you have proof? Yeah. After Jesus... Jesus did the miracle. Remember that of, of feeding the 5,000? 5,000 men, 15,000, probably other women and children. After he did that, the people, they just figured that Jesus could lead them against oppressive Rome. I mean, they're thinking, was he, this, here is one who is our ticket to freedom. But listen to John 6, 6, 15. So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. This is amazing to me. I tell you why this is amazing. Because of what he's about to say, and when you combine it with some other passages, it is amazing. They want to come and take him by force to make him king, which is, I think it's amazing because it's like, here's one who's like, done all sorts of things, all sorts of miracles, walked on water and fed, you know, people with making food and um, cast demons out. And, and I'm thinking to myself, how are you going to force that guy to do anything? Really? You have more power than him? As though he's just going to bow down and listen to you? 
think it's interesting to me. It says here, he withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. You remember when they came out to him to arrest him? And they said, who is it? You know, they, they, you know, he, he asked, who is it you come? They said, Jesus, Naz, you know, Nazarene. And he said, I am. And they all fell down. He could have done that right here. Just cause them all to fall down. They come to take it by force, cause them to fall down. We don't know exactly what he did. It doesn't say he did that. No, no ostentatious, you know, thing where he's going to, you know, zap them. He just quietly withdrew, went up to the mountain, just prayed. That's it. Jesus was no protest guy. You remember Jesus before Pilate? Are you a king? Pilate asked Jesus that because that was the charge, insurrection. And so Jesus said, remember this, my kingdom is not from here. You're looking at me the wrong way. I mean, I didn't come here to force my kingdom. And by saying that, Jesus was saying, I willingly lived under your authority. Point out the times that I didn't. You can't. In fact, do you remember what Pilate would say, go on to say right after this? I find this man what? Innocent. And what he was saying is, he's not the insurrectionist that you say make him out to be. This is not a protest guy. So what's your motive for submitting to the governing authorities? You need to check it. Are you doing it out of obedience to Jesus? Are you doing it because you want to follow Jesus' example? Or how about this one? Are you doing it because you want to honor Jesus? That's kind of a third thing you can say about this. Instead of the public demonstration against the government, we we honor Christ when we make it clear that we understand that God has put the police here to keep the civil peace. Romans 13.5 Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. What is he talking about here? For wrath. What he's saying is submit to the authorities because God has given the police to bring wrath against the one who practices evil. So you do it to avoid the wrath and that wrath is from God through the police. And by the way, you know you practice this pretty much every day. You're driving down the road, you're thinking to yourself, This is the silliest thing that I'm driving 35 miles an hour. When I'm looking around, there's nobody on this road. And I can get from here to over there. If I could just go a little bit faster, I will not harm a soul. Right? You ever work that through in your mind that way? I know you do. And uh, maybe, you know, kind of, I'll do 36. How's that? Whatever. 
But you know what keeps you closer to 35? This. I don't want to face the wrath of the police as they're giving me that little, hey, here's your contribution to, you know, thank you for the policeman's ball that we'll be having in a couple months. You do it to avoid wrath. That wrath, by the way, is from God through the police. It's God's wrath. But it's also necessary because your conscience is telling you that it is the right thing to do just what they say. God has given the governing authorities like the police to keep order. He's a God of order. To keep the peace. He's a God of peace. Earlier in Romans 13.4 it says, For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so we honor Christ when we submit. He said, but what about when they overreach and they actually promote evil? I mean, like abortion and stuff like that. I mean, what about that? Well, let me just say there's a time to not follow the government. But not as a justification for evil. You know, during that time of COVID, I remember we we kept talking about this as a church that we would still gather but we're not going to demonstrate we're not going to put it in their faces by saying stuff on facebook or going out and saying you know we're this church and so forth just want to be quiet and just obey our lord just want, we love him we love him You know, there's no, if there's no rebellion in, in what you're doing, we, there's not a justification for evil, by the way. Listen, bombing abortion clinics is doing evil. We saw all the rebellion trying to defund the police and so forth. That was evil. That's evil. And the evil didn't honor Christ. And we should be afraid if we're like that. And that's what Paul says in Romans 13. We should also do it not just out of fear, but out of conscience. Because we know that it is the right thing to do. Our conscience tells us that. You say, well, okay, but but aren't there times to disobey the governing authorities? Yeah. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 21 said, Render to Caesar the things that are what? Caesar's. And the things to God, the things that are God's. You submit to obey Jesus, to follow him, to honor him. But what about if they want you to disobey Jesus? Then you don't follow the governing authorities. And if it commands us to do what Jesus commands us, or, or excuse me, commands us not to do what Jesus commands us to do, then we disobey. Not in demonstration, but quietly. Acts chapter 4 and 5, great section. It kind of paints the picture of that. And you remember what they said? We must 
obey God rather than men. Will you notice that Jesus didn't resist arrest and punishment, by the way? How about Paul? Study it. Search. He never resisted arrest. Now, there were times, there was that time in Acts 16 where he was in there, and he said, oh, by the way, I want you to know you arrested a Roman citizen, and that's against your law. To which they said, oh dear, unlock him and get him out of here, right? And he said, nope, you're going to do this according to your law. You come and get me out of here. You come and do this. You can, we're going we're gonna to go by the book. I like that. He never fought at that level, even though he was innocent. You say, why? Because both Jesus and Paul understood how to fight. How are we to fight? Now, I'm going to mention this, and we're going to pick this back up next Lord's Day. How are we to fight? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, which tells us that the weapons of our warfare are spiritual and not fleshly. See, what are our weapons? Two of them, and we'll point this out also next Lord's Day. I'll show you from Ephesians 6, next Lord's Day, that they are the Word of God and they are prayer. You know what our our only defense against an overreaching governing authority is? And we go back and think about how we ha- how we should have handled COVID. You preach the word and you pray. That's why that's why we gather. By the way, when the world isolated itself, because that's our only way to handle it. Go get the word, pray together. Let's conclude here. I believe what gets revealed so often is that we are looking to the governing authorities to make the world Christian. That won't happen. So what's our choice? Is it to just get upset? Is it to do something to rebel and show that we're not going to take it anymore? No, we preach the word and we pray. You deal with the command, submit yourselves. You deal with the motive, submit for the Lord's sake. And then we have four more that we're going to see and roll out here from this passage. And we'll get to that next Lord's Day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for giving it to us through Peter. And we admit, Lord, that we um, can be so stubborn, Father, and, and we uh, can struggle at times just submitting to the authorities around us, any authority. So I just pray, Father, help us to receive these words and um, make us a church full of people that live this way 
And because we have purpose, we want to see people know you. And so, Father, will you use the testimony of our lives as we cling to you and obey you and seek to honor you as uh, grace and light to the unbelieving that they might receive the, the gospel and be saved. Will you do this, Lord, for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.